Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is a show we did a while back. It's about radiation. I'm thinking now of the more recent series for all mankind, where you see some astronauts who are on the moon getting a dose of radiation. Because in fact, given all the radiation we worry about here on planet Earth, when we start going other places, we start traveling to places like Mars, there's gonna be a lot more radiation that we're gonna have to deal with. Not all radiation is scary and not all radiation is bad. It's a poorly understood thing. And uh, in fact, sometimes the fear of radiation is worse and causes more problems than the radiation itself. So enjoy this show. Santa Claus? Oh, who are you? I'm from the International Atomic Energy Agency. And would you like to sit on Santa's lap? No. What is it with you guys these days? No, I'm here to talk about the radiation doses you've been receiving. S- Santa doesn't understand those words. You keep flying unshielded through space. That exposes both you and your reindeer to massive doses of cosmic radiation. Oh, Santa doesn't believe that. Have you looked at Rudolph's nose lately? You would even say it glows. Exactly, and repeatedly sliding down chimneys exposes you to radiation from granite. Santa doesn't see how a chimney can be naughty. (laughs) I'm serving you with a cease and desist order. No more flying. No more chimneys. And no more kids sitting on your lap. Our readings indicate they're getting the equivalent of three chest x-rays every time they do. From a jolly old elf? Okay, you're basically a bowl full of jelly combined with a nuclear fuel rod. I gotta get out of here. We're getting alarming readings from the Lunesta moth's poop. And now the guy who told Godzilla it was a normal growth spurt. Colin McEnroe. I didn't know. We didn't know back then. So, yes, our uh, show today is uh, its a salute to radiation. I don't know if we should exactly salute radiation, but look, it's there. <laughs> it's not going away. So we best uh, understand it. Uh, that's the plan anyway. And to do that, we'll be talking to uh, Tim J. Jorgensen, Associate Professor of Radiation Medicine and Director of the Health uh, Physics and Radiation Protection Graduate Program at Georgetown University and the author, most recently, of Strange Glow. The Story of Radiation. Uh, joining us also is David Ropeek, speaker and consultant on risk perception and risk communication. He is the author of How Risky Is It, Really? Why Our Fears Don't Match the Facts. So those of you who are dying to know how to feel about your microwave ovens and things like that, we can probably get you some clarity. A little bit later, too, uh, we're going to add another guest to talk about what space travel uh, does in terms of exposing astronauts. And not just space travel, but like being up in the International Space Station, what kind of radiation exposure you get there. I might add parenthetically that if we try to live on Mars, 
<laughs> Mars is like super radioactive because it doesn't have the kind of protections, atmospheric protections and field protections even, I would say, that Earth does. I, I just said I would say like I know something about that. All right. So uh, fortunately, we do have people who know about things like that. And Tim Jorgensen, I'm going to have you uh, start us off. Um, when we say radiation, um, I mean, in the broadest sense, radiation would include even the radio waves that are carrying this radio show to people. That's not really usually what we're talking about. We're not talking about infrared light and stuff like that. We're talking about ionizing radiation. But then what's ionizing radiation? I think most of us don't know. Give us a, a, a quick primer. Okay, so ionizing radiation is uh, part of the electromagnetic spectrum. I know that's a big word, but it basically means, you're right, radio waves and, and other types of radiation are part of that. But when the energy gets high enough to ionize things, so ionize means pulling electrons off of molecules, that's when we start to worry. So those are, so we're specifically talking about the ionizing radiation. Some people will know them as X-rays, gamma rays, beta particles, things like that. Um, not not UV, uh, not radio waves, not microwaves, things things of that nature. Right. Mostly we know about gamma rays from Marvel comic books, but uh, you're going to uh, help us understand them better as we go along here. Uh, we know what happens when you get bitten by a radioactive spider. We know what happens when the Fantastic Four fly their spaceship through a belt of gamma rays in outer space. Uh, but actually, that's not real knowledge. And speaking of real knowledge, you know, I, I would have guessed that we've known about radiation for hundreds of years, but really kind of in the history of science, it's a relatively recent discovery, right? It goes up pretty much the end of the 19th century and one specific German scientist. Tell us about him. All right. So, yeah, you're right. It happened in 1895, to be precise. And uh, a German physicist named Wilhelm Röntgen was working at, at uh, his university. And he was playing with something uh, called a Crookes tube. So a Crookes tube, um, it looks like uh, the, the bulb of a spotlight, actually. And uh, this tube, it has no filament, unlike a, a regular light bulb. And, he, and all physicists had these at the time because they knew that if they put electricity across these tubes, they would glow in the dark. So that was pretty cool. And they, had, and they had identified something that they were calling uh, uh, cathode rays that were, that were going across the tube. We now know that these cathode rays were merely electrons, but at that point, the electron had not been discovered yet. So they, everyone was playing, trying to figure out what cathode rays were. And so you, you did this thing in a, in, a, in a darkened room so you could see the tube glow better. And what uh, Rankin noticed was that not only was the tube glowing, but he had some fluorescent screens that were hanging up on the wall in the back of his laboratory, and they started to glow every time he put the Crookes tube on. So I thought, well, maybe there's some cathode rays that are escaping the tube. So he tried to block them. And uh, everyone knew that you could block uh, cathode rays with any type of matter, any material. So he tried to block them with wood and rubber, things like that. And he couldn't block them. And uh, then he tried metal, and he could block them. And, and then, uh, but perchance, he put his hand between the Crookes tube and the fluorescent screen, and he s saw the shadows of his bones on the fluorescent screen. And that, that kind of freaked him out. He thought he might be losing his mind. Uh, so he brought his wife down to the laboratory, and she confirmed, yes, those were the shadows of bones. And so he had her. He took a photograph. Basically, he replaced the fluorescent screen with photographic film. 
and he made a permanent copy of the image of the bones in her hand. And this causes sensation. Um, he sent it out to some newspapers. They published it. And this thing went like wildfire around the world. Almost every major newspaper in the world covered it within a couple of weeks. And the beauty of this thing was that, as I said, everybody had a, had a Crookes tube. All the physicists, I mean, had a Crookes tube. So everybody ran into the laboratory, did it again, and reproduced it. So nobody doubted what he had, had discovered. And basically, in a matter of weeks, it went from nobody knowing about it to everybody knowing about it. And that was the discovery of x-rays. And, and what followed, I think it's fair to say, just in, in a, a short set of years, was a lot, were a lot of people, and some of them kind of coming at it from different parts of the scientific frontier, doing a lot of experimenting uh, and popularizing of what we would, I think, call radioactive materials without really knowing how incredibly dangerous that could be. So whether it was Edison or the Curies, uh, what, you had a lot of people, you know, sort of messing around with this stuff without perhaps fully understanding what they were messing with? That's true. In fact, uh, so x-rays are, are not radioactivity. Radioactivity is something that comes from elements decaying. But uh, remarkably, that w- radioactivity was discovered the very next year. And the reason it was discovered was because um, a guy named uh, Becquerel, a French, a French scientist, um, he had been studying fluorescence. And so he knew about the fluorescence story and, and Rentgen. And he was wondering, well, maybe these minerals I have that are fluorescent, maybe they're uh, also emitting x-rays. And so he started to experiment with film. And one of the fluorescent materials that he had in his collection was uranium. And um, basically, uh, he showed that he could expose film with uranium, uh, which suggested that uh, X-rays, he thought X-rays were coming out of, of the uranium. Now we know those are actually gamma rays. So he discovered, um, he discovered radioactivity the very next year. Um, so it was quite remarkable. And then the Curies realized that there was more radioactivity in uranium ore than could be accounted for by just the uranium, and they started looking for it, and they discovered radium. And so over a very short period of time, just a few years, we went all the way from not knowing that radiation even existed to having discovered uranium and radium, and then more and more radioisotopes were being discovered. Right. So this is one of these exponential leaps. Exponential. Absolutely. Particularly for that time period, because it took took like a year to get something in a scientific journal. But this was going crazy over short periods of time just through communication between the newspapers and interested scientists. So Edison is messing around with x-rays to considerable hazard to himself and to one of his assistants. The Curies are putting themselves probably at more risk than they knew uh, messing around with radium. And then there's a kind of vogue for this stuff. I mean, it was even sold as, as a health tonic. Is that right? That is correct. So um, in, immediately people understood, uh, you know, when people saw the x-rays uh, of the hand that Rankin had published, um, they immediately knew that there was a role for this in diagnostic things. And then um, they also started um, treating cancers with the radiation with the idea that maybe they could use the radiation to burn out cancers. And, uh, and, and they had some success immediately with shrinking uh, breast tumors. And so um, there, there, was, uh, there was not a, a, an awareness that this stuff was bad yet. It was like, this stuff is good. And uh, there was more and more effort to purify it and use it in various medical applications. And then soon, uh, shortly after that, people were putting it in consumer products like uh, watch dials. They were drinking the stuff to give them energy. There was really no general awareness that this could be harmful to you at the time. Right. And so we have the radium girls who worked on these watches. A lot of them were here in Connecticut. Um, not all of them. I think the last, 
one of the last ones recently died at age 104. So that's, not, that's correct. Not, only the, not all of them were, were medically compromised by this stuff. Um, and so, David Rupik, that's, I think, where you come to the, into the conversation, because I think as a public, we have a hard time evaluating what the dangers of radiation are. I think we've gone maybe from that sort of reckless time that uh, Tim just described, where people were using radium as a health tonic, to a sense that everything that involves radiation is dangerous. Although some of the people who think that then go to a tanning bed appointment or something like that, failing to failing to grasp the paradox of what they're doing. But but David, how do you help people, or how do you, well how can you help us kind of parse out the the, the dangers of radiation? Oh goodness, um, that's a big time. I first of all don't take it upon myself to help anybody feel the way in the end they choose to feel because risk of anything, whether it's radiation or climate change or driving and texting, is how you feel about the facts, not just the facts. So feelings are up to individuals. But I do uh, try to help people understand what the emotional or psychological characteristics are about uh, ionizing radiation. Um, that make it particularly scary because there are, according to researchers whose work I've read, I haven't done this original work myself, I should quickly add, um, a set of characteristics that most people share around the world about various risks that seem to make them more or less scary, uh, a few of which are key to our excessive fear of radiation. So, um, first of all, Ionizing radiation, as opposed to the kind that you're using for your radio conversation and, and Internet and stuff, ionizing the high-energy kind, it is either the waves that Tim talked about or little bits of atoms breaking apart radioactivity. When an atom is unstable and a little bit of it goes flying off, that's an activity. That's the click on the Geiger counter. That's a Becquerel, named for that guy. That's the click, boink, and it's an activity. Uh, either those flying bits or those high-energy waves can damage DNA. So that's the process, but it's invisible. Mm-hmm. To get to the psychology, not the science, it's invisible and odorless and tasteless, which means that we can't detect it with our senses. Mm-hmm. And whenever that's the case, about anything, about industrial chemicals, about um, a hidden terrorist who you don't know when or where or how they're going to attack, not knowing is scary. Not knowing means that you can't know what you need to know to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. That's a lack of control. That's like driving a car. I use this analogy all the time to help people understand it. Uh, fast, on an open road, and then closing your eyes. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's closing your eyes. It's giving up the knowledge that you need to keep yourself safe. Well, with invisible risks, undetectable risks, one of which includes this ionizing radiation stuff, not knowing is scary. There are a couple others, if I, sorry for continuing here. Uh, There's another version of not knowing, which is not understanding. So Tim was talking about waves and electromagnetic, and I was talking about bits of atoms going flying apart, and you should see what happens to my journalistic editor's faces when you start using those words. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? As, as happens to most people. They go, huh? What? Huh? Atoms? What? Huh? And so being complicated or harder to understand is the same thing. If you don't have your mental arms around it, you don't know what you need to know to, con- 
to, to protect yourself. There are two others, pardon this long soliloquy. One is radiation that we talk about being afraid of, and, and you alluded to this in your open and a couple times in, in your discussion. The, the stuff that we're afraid of is human-made. We're not afraid of the stuff that comes from the banana. A lot of people who try to communicate about radiation risk say, hey, there's radiation from Fukushima, but there's also radiation from bananas. Well, emotionally, those are different. It's a dumb comparison, quite frankly. It's a dumb comparison because it ignores the science that says that psychologically, a human-made risk scares us more than a natural one. So they can be absolutely the same scientifically, but emotionally, they're apples and oranges. This kind of radiation that we're afraid of comes from nuclear power, and it comes from, you know, crooks tubes, and it comes from humans, not the sky, not the earth, not bananas. So that's a second one. Yeah, in just a second, we're going to come to some of these things that are sort of in our lives that we don't Thanks. acknowledge or talk about. So I want to circle, Thanks, yeah. circle back the last to that. One, very quickly, is that it causes cancer, or it's perceived as causing cancer, and it does, but at a very, very, very low rate, which we didn't know when we learned our fear about it from the bomb and the fallout and everything. We know now, though, that it causes very, very, very le a little damage, less than people assume. But cancer is scary. And cancer is scary because we're not just afraid about how likely it is that we will die. We're afraid of how we go. And if we go with a lot of more pain and suffering, that risk is going to scare us more. Well, that's a long lineup, in addition to the history of how we learned our fear, that makes this kind of radiation particularly frightening. I want to talk about that history of how we uh, learned our fear. So, uh, Tim Jorgensen, we're going to play a little clip for you. Uh, this is one of the ways that people get a lot of their information about radiation. Are you out of your Vulcan mind? No human can tolerate the radiation that's in there. As you are so fond of observing, Doctor, I am not human. Get out! Get out! No! You'll flood the whole compartment. He's dead already. A 100 micro Tesla wave of radiation that would destroy our ozone layer, killing every living organism on the planet. What happened? You have been exposed to a lethal dose of radiation. You will experience catastrophic organ failure. In five days' time, you will die. We have information that downtown Chicago is the next target. And they're planning to detonate a dirty bomb. Do you have any idea how many people would die if an explosion of that magnitude were to occur in the city? Things almost always sound so much worse when Nicolas Cage talks about them. <laughs> so, um, so Tim Jorgensen, you know, there was sort of that, and it really kind of started in the 50s, I, I think, with Godzilla movies and stuff like that. And, and then I, I think maybe another wave came around the time of the uh, Michael Douglas, Jane Fonda, China Syndrome, where people started freaking out in popular culture about things that could happen with nuclear power plants. I don't know where Homer Simpson fits into all that, but, but, <laughs> but Tim Jorgensen, we get a lot of our... our our psychological substructure from popular culture. What has popular culture been telling us? Well, popular culture has definitely increased the fear, the fear and hysteria around anything to do with radiation. And um, I became aware of this, actually, because uh, during six years ago, during the Fukushima uh, nuclear power plant accident, 
um, people were calling me and news organizations were calling me and asking me about the level of this danger. Should, you know, should they evacuate California? All kinds of things like this, all of which were, um, were on the absurd level. And a lot of it, I think, was fed by this uh, general hysteria that, uh, you know, that, that the entertainment industry has put, in around, put around radiation. When you tell them the facts, they're not as interesting, actually. <laughs> You're never going to see any movies about what low-level radiation does because it's just not quite as interesting as all that. But I think um, I agree with David that the fact that people can't see it, they don't understand it, it, it heightens their fear, their suspicion Suspicious. They're suspicious of the government. They're suspicious of the military. So I think um, I think uh, there needs to be some reality brought back into the conversation about radiation. So, uh, David Ropeek, you know, uh, you were telling a story before we went on the air that I thought was really fascinating. And, and I think it's an example of sort of um, the stories that we don't know. Maybe they know this story in Japan better. But um, one of the times that one of the initial times when we start getting nervous uh, about radiation is is kind of that beginning of the so-called atomic age uh, and, and uh, uh, at the end of World War II and then the late 40s and, and early 50s that followed. So tell us about this museum that you uh, visited in Tokyo. You're going to have to explain about the Lucky Dragon Boat. It's a story most Americans yes, don't know. absolutely. And, and it's an important story to tell. Um, and it, 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 I want to keep it central to the topic of radiation and rather than just digressing into the history. Um, the modern fear of ionizing radiation, the kind that can damage our DNA and lead to cancer, that's specifically the kind we're talking about, not the light bulb kind, um, has a specific history, and that's part of the psychology, too, because when we learn our fears, we tend to burn them into place and then close our minds to additional information later that says, don't worry, because how we learn to worry keeps us safe. So we learn to worry about radiation in the modern age, a, from nuclear atomic, first atomic, and then nuclear weapons going off. And specifically in 1954, there was an atmospheric test in the Pacific at the Bikini uh, Island and the Marshall Islands atolls called Castle Bravo. And it was a big nuclear bomb uh, set up by the U.S. And the fallout fell out further than the warning area that they had put out saying, hey, everybody, keep your ships this far away. And it coded in like incinerated and highly radioactive coral and ash a bunch of guys on a fishing boat from japan called the lucky dragon and they realized because the this is 1954 so they were the world was aware of atomic weapons oh my gosh that's probably what that was but they didn't know anything about fallout nobody had heard about the radioactivity of fallout yet really so they got coated in this stuff, and they were immediately burned because the doses were very, very, very high, unlike what we're normally exposed to either naturally or from Chernobyl or Fukushima, the doses of which are much lower and less risky. And they radioed home. And by the time they got back, there were cameras from all around the world taking pictures of them getting off. And to shorten the story, this boat is in a museum in Tokyo. You can see it. It's kind of chilling. And, and um, my sense was, though, that um, there was one guy on the boat who had cirrhosis, and it was kind of hard to figure out what he died of, but that the others, it wasn't really clear that this was a fatal dose of radiation. It wasn't fatal to any of them. None of the others died. But they were very sick from acute radiation poisoning, which you can get, and this guy's liver cirrhosis and underlying conditions became fatal only because his immune system was so badly damaged by the high doses of radiation that he got, or so the officials at that time thought. 
In any event, what happened from this boat to bring us to today in 30 seconds or less is the world became aware of the danger of radioactive fallout. Well, they were already scared of blazes from the bombs. Now they're scared of the fallout associated with the bombs. The world is being contaminated with this stuff. I remember it showed up in the milk in Vermont. That led to the first global protest movement, which was ban the bomb and the atmospheric testing of these weapons. And that specifically, Rachel Carson herself writes about this, informed the creation of modern environmentalism itself. Mm -hmm. The technology is raining down on us and poisoning the earth. The fear of radiation, which then sprang up in culture, as you pointed out, Godzilla came out a year after this boat and was inspired by this boat incident specifically, mm -hmm. led to modern environmentalism itself. One of its central truths is radiation, bad, scary, nuclear power, no. I mean, it's burned into us, and this boat was the beginning of all of that. All right, we have to take a break here. We're going to come back with more of this conversation. I think when we come back, we need to walk you listeners through that exact paradigm as applied to, say, a disaster like Chernobyl. All right. We are talking about radiation, and we want to thank uh, David Rapik, speaker and consultant on risk perception and risk communication. He's the author of How Risky Is It Really? Why Our Fears Don't Match the Facts. Uh, we're still talking to Tim Jorgensen. Uh, he is the author most recently of Strange Glow, The Story of Radiation. All right. So, um, uh, Tim Jorgensen, given uh, everything that was said uh, towards the end of the previous segment, maybe we could take something uh, like Chernobyl. I, I think, once again, this is one of these things that's kind of latently a blunt instrument in most people's minds. They know there was some kind of horrible nuclear accident, and everybody anywhere near it must have gotten incredibly sick and probably died a very premature death from the radiation. Do we really know any of that? What do we really know about Chernobyl? Okay, so we know this. Uh, it was due largely to uh, operator error at a nuclear power plant in the Ukraine. Chernobyl was in the Ukraine. And um, what happened is the, a reactor there melted down and released a tremendous amount of radioactivity into the environment. Uh, there was a massive cleanup effort that eventually used over 100,000 workers to, to clean it up. And uh, many of those workers themselves got very high doses of radiation. About 120, 130 people got radiation sickness. Of them, about 50 people died. Um, Off-site, the, the risk was basically contamination of the, it was a highly agricultural area. Um, they, uh, basically, people were eating uh, crops and things that were coming from the area and getting increased exposure. Um, they had the double whammy because um, one of the radioisotopes that's released by a nuclear power plant is iodine-131, uh, which is concentrated in the thyroid to make thyroid hormones. And these people had a iodine-deficient diet. So unfortunately for them, as soon as their thyroid saw the iodine, they kind of soaked it up. So they were having a bigger effect on their thyroids than would happen in the United States or even in Japan. 
Japan, where we have a more iodine-rich diet. So it's estimated that about 16,000 children ultimately got uh, or got or will get um, uh, thyroid cancer as a result of that exposure. Uh, so it was uh, the thyroid cancer was a very big deal, very measurable. You can see that uh, as time goes on, the incidence increases. Um, there are, it's estimated that maybe as many as 22,000 other cancers will eventually show up, but those are statistical, uh, determinedly determined cancers because the rates aren't going to be high enough um, to, to detect that in any type of epidemiological study. It's just a theoretical thing. So it, it had a very uh, large uh, impact, and it's still having an impact. The area is still quarantined. It's still not good for agricultural use. And, um, and so, so that was a huge event. And um, let me put to put this in context, you know, there's a lot of confusion with the public because the International Atomic Energy Commission rates nuclear accidents and Chernobyl got a seven and they also gave Fukushima a seven. Uh, so that's the highest rating on, in, in both. And that's because it involved a threat to the core, melt, partial melting or full melting of the core. And so that's considered a worst case scenario. But in terms of a public health impact Fukushima is nowhere near Chernobyl in any respect. We don't expect, the doses were so low, um, not even the workers got anything close enough to give them radiation sickness. Um, the people off-site got very low um, amounts of radiation, just a couple of fold above background. We don't expect any thyroid cancers, any other type of cancers, um, and the number of people that were exposed was much lower. Uh, in Europe, as many as 500 million people saw some exposure to Chernobyl radiation. So it, it basically contaminated much of Europe and, and, and the Soviet Union. I mean, Russia, excuse me, Russia. Mm -hmm. um, if David were still here, Tim, I think he'd also say the other thing that's harder to measure but is real is the psychological damage that's done by something like this. I mean, if you think something horrible happened to you, you get depressed, you may have post-traumatic stress disorder. Also, the kind of panic that goes on kind of in the fog of war uh, right. here where, where like old people are being moved, maybe unnecessarily out of places in ways that are very disruptive and maybe even dangerous to their health, right? We get so scared and worried and depressed, we can make ourselves even sicker. That's that's right, exactly. In, in the panic of the situation, some unwise decisions are made. So, for example, uh, uh, you evacuate areas and, and uh, and there have been studies, particularly uh, the, the effects in Fukushima of evacuating nursing home patients um, because of this supposed threat to them. And there, were, there was a high mortality, morbidity associated with that. So, so basically, um, if we overreact to these things, we can cause public health crises um, that... Um, that needn't otherwise occur. So really nobody should have been, I mean, there were reasons to evacuate people because of the tsunami, uh, which had destroyed structures and things like that. But the, the radioactivity um, to just purely to evacuate people from Fukushima based on the radioactivity threat to the surrounding population in retrospect was very unwise. Uh, Tim, let's talk a little bit about um, radiation in, in more commonplace ways. Uh, we've mentioned bananas <laughs> several times here today, and it's true. There's radiation from bananas and from potatoes and uh, from Brazil nuts. Uh, there's uh, radiation from granite. If you just uh, paid a lot of money to have a granite countertop uh, put in your kitchen, uh, uh, there's probably radiation from it. These things, though, I mean, I guess they would fall into the category of background radiation, just sort of part of the, the fabric of our lives. 
Yeah, that's right. Like everybody is exposed to this background radiation. There's really no way you can get away from it. In fact, uh, even if you were to isolate yourself in a lead room, you'd still have uh, background radiation because some of that is coming from your own body. Um, many of the uh, the elements in your own body are radioactive, particularly the potassium that everybody talks about that's in banana and things like that. That's radioactive. So you're basically irradiating yourself just by living, and there's no way you can get around that. So organisms have been dealing with this since the beginning of time that the, uh, this low level of background radiation and it's just part of our fabric. Um, my sense is that there are some exceptions maybe to that. If you've got radon in your basement, uh, that's a real thing. If you fly a real lot, I mean, if you're a real frequent flyer, you're up in the air uh, getting cosmic radiation all the time, you get quite a dose that way. And also smoking cigarettes, you're basically pumping radiation right into your lungs at a pretty high rate. Uh, how close to the truth am I, am I about any of those? Okay, so um, in terms of let's let's do the flying because a lot of people are interested in flying. A lot of people are flying days. These there's a uh, people have accumulated hundreds of thousands or even millions of miles flying, and they're always concerned about that. The reason you get radiation exposure from flying is because you're flying at high altitude. So there's such thing such things called cosmic radiation. This is radiation that comes from space. When you're on the Earth surface, you're pretty much shielded from that because the atmosphere filters it all out before it gets down to the ground. So there's not that much on ground. But as soon as you start going to altitudes, uh, like most planes are flying at 30,000 feet, you have very thin air there. It's no longer filtering as well. So your cosmic radiation exposure goes up. But in terms of what that means, in terms of added dose, so maybe a very, very active pilot who is flying all the time, uh, he may double his background dose mm. from, from that flying. And so since most uh, c commercial passengers aren't flying nowhere near the doses that a commercial pilot would be, um, you can see that they're getting pr pretty low levels, just, uh, just a, a fraction of an additional background dose. Um, how about the other things? Um, radon... So uh, radon. Yeah. So radon uh, is a uh, the source of radon is radium in the soil. Mm -hmm. So anywhere you have radium in the soil, um, uh, it can uh, produce radon, and radon is a is a radioactive gas, and it comes up through the soil, and it can get into houses. And so if you breathe it, it's not good. And um, the reason we know that, in fact, it was the first radiation effect that we knew about because there for years. Miners in Germany had been coming down with lung cancers, and nobody knew why. They knew it had something to do with the, uh, with the mines. To make a long story short, it turned out to be the, the radon. So we knew that radon caused cancer. For, or Even before we knew about radon, even before we knew about radioactivity, we knew that something in these mines was causing cancer, and it turned out to be the radon. So this brings us to the question, what about radon in our homes? Are, 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 is this something we should worry about? Well, as you can imagine, the radon, with some notable exceptions, um, the radon in most homes is much, much lower than it is in mines. Mm -hmm. And so we've decided, the, the United States government has decided just to limit it so, so that it doesn't significantly increase people's risk. But one thing I want to point out 
is that the risk that we're trying, the people that we're trying to protect from radon are largely smokers because radon, for some reason, is more carcinogenic. Carcinogenic means causes cancer to smokers than to people who are non-smokers. So um, basically, we have radon limits that are set to protect the smoking population. Even then, the risks are pretty low. So as long as your house is within the federal regulations, um, you have um, very low low risk involved. And even those federal regulations assume that you're living in the house for 75 years, 17 hours a day, seven days a week. So most people don't fall into that category. All right. And it's one of 9 million good reasons not to smoke. Um, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if you needed one more, right. there it is. There's the 9 million and one. Um, so uh, one of the other places that most of us uh, encounter doses of radiation is when we go to the doctor or our dentist. Um, right. And uh, I was reading various milliram levels and stuff today, but uh, maybe you can sort of put this into perspective for us. I mean, should should people be worried if you know their dentist likes to take uh, X-rays of their teeth? Okay, so um, I get this question all the time, and, uh, and and basically people are very worried about the dental x-rays. I mean, they're very aware that they're happening, and, and they see it right up there in their head, and they start worrying about brain cancer and things like that. The doses from these uh, modern dental x-ray machines are very, very low, um, uh, quite low indeed, and, and the risk is low for two reasons. First of all, the, the x-ray dose itself is low, but also it's just restricted to a small portion of your body. So because only your facial area is getting exposed, and even that um, to very low doses, that, that these, um, these uh, dental x-rays contribute in a trivial way um, to uh, increase our background dose. So those aren't really a concern. Um, as we go into other things, um, you know, move up to chest x-rays and CT scans and things like that, of course, the doses go up along with that. But also, usually those things are being used for very serious reasons. You're suspected to having pneumonia or you're suspected of having uh, a, a cancer itself or some other disease. And so you're using this. And there is a small amount of risk that's associated with using with using uh, radiation in medicine. But on the, on the other side is if you don't do these things, the risk of the underlying disease that you don't know about is far more dangerous than the risk from these, uh, from these medical uh, uh, diagnostic x-rays. All right. We're getting a good dose of sanity here in addition to radiation. Uh, so uh, let's ask about Woodward thing, then we'll take a break. Then we've uh, really got to switch over to outer space. Uh, but let's, uh, I mean, I think the modern fear is cell phones, right? The, this thing that you hold up to the side of your head. Uh, and this one, it seems like the research, because it's maybe partly because it's a new product, uh, a relatively new thing in our lives, a little less clear how worried we should be about this. Okay, so um, before I answer the details on this, let me get back to the general concept that, that cell phone radiation is not right. ionizing radiation. Mm-hmm. It's an, it's analogous to radio waves, mm-hmm. and and so uh, we don't have uh, we don't uh, it doesn't ionize uh, cells uh, uh, atoms, and so if it causes damage to cells and DNA, as David brought up, DNA needs to be damaged to cause cancer. We don't know how it's doing it because it's not ionizing things. The energy is just simply too low. So we don't have any, if it does cause cancer, we don't know how it does it because it's, it doesn't fit into our model of how things cause cancer. Um, the other thing is that there have been a lot of studies about cell phones, uh, be, particularly a Danish study that involves many, many subscribers over many years. And um, 
If there is an association, the association is very weak. The studies are inconsistent, and the, and the effect is very small. Even if you extrapolate this over to the millions of people that are um, using cell phones around the world, you wouldn't expect to see an increase in cancer rates for effects this small. And in fact, in terms of brain cancer, the brain cancer incidence in the United States has remained flat for 20 years. Now, you'll notice 20 years ago, people weren't using cell phones. Mm -hmm. If these cell phones are giving everybody brain cancer, where are these brain cancers? They're not showing up in the clinic. So I think, um, you know, the Basically, what I can say is we can't say, no, cell phones have no effect on your health. We, it's very hard to prove that something doesn't have an effect on yourself. But if it does have an effect on health, it is so small that it is immeasurable. And so um, I think people ought to keep that in mind. Um, I'll tell you what they should keep in mind. Uh, this is not necessarily the uh, position of an associate professor of radiation and medicine and director, uh, director of health physics and radiation protection guideline program at Georgetown University. It's just mine. You're much more da in danger from messing around with your cell phone while you're driving your car. <laughs> <laughs> when looking at your texts and talking on your phone and not paying attention than you are from the radiation coming from your cell phone. That is and, that is an, and that is a measurable increase in death rates right. that nobody is disputing. So you're right there. Right. There's, that's you the take my job. You're doing a great job. All right. Uh, we're going to take a little break. Uh, we're both going to uh, not take the next job, which involves going into space. Or maybe, Tim, maybe you are going into space for all I know. But we need to go up there and find out what's going on with some of that cosmic radiation Tim was talking about. So we'll do that on the other side of this. Well, I'm not uptight, not unattractive. Turn me on tonight, because I'm a radioactive, radioactive. Well, it's not a fight, and I'm not your captain. So the next time your power goes out, eat three bananas, two potatoes, and a large hamburger. You should be able to read by the glow from your esophagus. Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish doesn't swim near Millstone. Our intern is Sarah Bly. The part of Santa was played by Sir Ray Hardman. The part of Bill Curry was played by Homer Simpson. And now, back to Colin. We still have uh, Tim Jorgensen, his book, Strange Glow, the Story of Radiation. Uh, joining us now also is uh, Franci Francis Cushinata, a professor for the Department of Health Physics and Diagnostic Science Sciences uh, at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, an expert on radiation exposure and risk management in space. So, um, first of all, Francis Cushinata, welcome to the conversation we're having. And I had a long conversation with Scott Kelly, who, of course, spent 340 days in the International Space Station. One thing that was clear to me from that conversation and from his book is he's going to be studied for the rest of his life, right? Because we don't really know what that means to spend that much time in the ISS. What do we want to know about that? Okay. Yeah, so it's glad to be here. I think um, yeah, the, the NASA has a, the longitudinal study where they follow up the astronauts and if they agree for the remainder of life. So, you know, it's only one person, but the things like um, cataracts, because we had seen before that you get cataracts from space radiation at very low doses, which is surprising because the, when you look at the same dose of x-rays or ground-based radiation, types of radiation, you wouldn't expect any association with increased cataracts. Um, changes to telomeres is one study. The, the ends of your 
chromosomes on, in, in your cells become shorter with your as you age, and they'll be studying whether that uh, is accelerated by his radiation exposure and just the whole space uh, space experience. Some studies have indicated that high levels of radiation also uh, affect the brain, stuff like spatial memory, risk-taking behavior. Is that stuff that they're interested in, uh, in terms of of space travel? Uh, Yeah, I think it's like for the Mars mission, will they remember the Mars mission because their their (laughs) cognition was changed and and the memory is an important part of that. So we we only know from mice and rat studies that uh, you see these changes, so so whether they'll occur in humans is a question, and then the studies and experimental studies are done under good conditions, but a little bit artificial that you can't expose for really long time periods like a Mars mission. So there's a lot of extrapolations that remains to understand these studies. Okay, so I've still got Tim Jorgensen here. I'm going to pull him into the conversation here. Tim, you've already referenced this, but once again, tell us how this radiation that we're talking about right now, this cosmic radiation that one might encounter, say, over a protracted period of time in in the ISS, differs from the other kinds of radiation we've been talking about today. Well, as Francis was saying, cosmic radiation is kind of fundamentally different than what we're seeing uh, on Earth. Uh, It has a lot of large particles, high ZE particles, high energy, uh, high big size particles that don't really get to us on Earth. And so there's always been a question about um, whether how much we know about cosmic radiation effects and whether what we've learned on Earth uh, can be applied to the astronauts or is their condition unique? And um, as, Fran- as Francis mentioned, there there is some belief that these cosmic radiations might be more harmful to astronauts than, than we had thought. Um, but And so there's been work on, on Earth he, he, trying to simulate these things in different experimental models, mice and rats and things like that, where you actually shoot high particles and, and then try to uh, figure out what the effects are. But fundamentally... Uh, they involve protons and high ZE particles that that um, we don't see on Earth. So it's a, it's a it, they're all ionizing radiations, but they have a different uh, character, a different quality to them. So Francis Cucinato, one of the questions that we would have then is if, in fact, in the 2030s there'll be some effort to send people to Mars. Is there uh, you want to know first of all what this radiation does to them, but I guess you also want to know how to shield them from this radiation. Different particles are are, are different. Uh, different kinds of radiation uh, is different. So what do we know about that? Yeah. So the um we, so the, back, the type of radiation, it just produces clusters, like X-rays can ionize atoms over tens of nanometers, but the heavy ions can ionize many times within a few nanometers. So the ionization pattern is why it's different. Um, so we know shielding is effective for the solar radiation, for the so yeah, solar flares, solar particle events. But the background galactic radiation is so high energy that you would need like several meters of shielding. So it's just too costly. I think the latest estimates is like $2 million per pound of shielding. So you kind of can do a little bit, but you can't do too much to reduce it. So it gets back to what is the risk. And one of the problems they're struggling now is, is what level of risk they would accept. So the, for the space station, they have a 3% probability of death from the radiation exposure, mostly due to cancer, is acceptable as long as you're below 3%. Mm-hmm. But, but above 3%, you're grounded. 
So the Mars mission, I've done this a lot. You estimate in the traditional type of models, it could be 5 to 10% with the uncertainty, but there's alternative assumptions that could push it up to 20%. So it becomes more like Russian roulette than uh, a 3%. So you could probably argue you back off from the 3% a little bit, but if it's 20%, then that's really a, a no-go decision. Um, in my opinion, my opinion. So this isn't necessarily part of your research, but but you know, I also find myself thinking, uh, getting ready for this show, that having watched the very entertaining movie The Martian uh, with uh, Matt Damon, where he's uh, on the surface of Mars. Good news, I may have a solution to my heating problem. Bad news, it involves me digging up the radioisotope thermoelectric generator. Now, if I remember my training correctly, one of the lessons was titled. Don't dig up the big box of plutonium, Mark. I get it. RTGs are good for spacecraft, but if they rupture around humans, no more humans. Which is why we buried it when we arrived. And planted that flag so we would never be stupid enough to accidentally go near it again. But as long as I don't break it... (laughs) I almost just said everything will be fine out loud. Look, the point is, I'm not cold anymore. And sure, I could choose to think about the fact that I'm warm because I have a decaying radioactive isotope riding right behind me, but right now i got bigger problems on my hands. I have scoured every single data file on Commander Lewis's personal drive. This is officially the least disco song she owns. The surface of Mars, I would assume, is super radioactive. It doesn't have the kind of shielding from radiation that the Earth does. I would, I would expect that that, like, you know, by, a, by an order of magnitude, Francis Cucinata will, will pose other kinds of technical problems. Yeah, the, it's, um, it's, the exposure going to Mars is, is much higher. But on Mars, you have the, the body of Mars shields you. So it's half of what would be in deep space on the transit to Mars. And then you have a thin carbon dioxide atmosphere, but it's much thinner than the Earth. So so the the particle, the cosmic rays pass through the atmosphere and then they hit the soil and and you do have, they call it albedo, the the spec splatter of the radiation and also create some like short-term radioisotopes. So it's different. It's the, the dose rate on the surface of Mars is similar to the dose rate on the space station, but on the way to Mars, it's about three times higher the dose rate. So, so that's the the problem is how long it takes to get there and, and return. Right. And so I, I want to go back to the brain function. We've only got time for one more thing to talk about here. The brain function thing I would think would be especially worrisome because presumably, although they will automate as much stuff as they possibly can, you need, you know, good cognition for the people who are on this trip. If they don't even know that they're starting to lose brain function, that would seem like a pretty dangerous consequence of radiation. Yeah, yeah. The, the the cancer risk. People, you know, some people think think that they'll accept it. I, I have problems with that. But if no one would accept that, you can't perform during the mission. So it's a, a big science challenge to find out if the studies with mice and rats are really uh, the, the the bottom line, and that 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 would be what would happen to a human. And then even even those studies are limited because of the the time of their radiation is very short, and you need to do a a chronic exposure. So then they haven't done that yet. But that would that would be unacceptable to say you're you're going to go and not have a proper function. Uh, sh- the things they've looked at are short-term memory, 
learning uh, spatial memory. So these are all important things for an astronaut. Yeah, I would think so. All right, we're going to have to stop it there. He's been a great guest, and thanks once again to Josh Nalea for producing this show. And thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow unless, for some reason, we, we don't show up. <laughs>